what's happening, all you beautiful geniuses? And welcome to another enlightening episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman. I hope you're having a wonderful summer so far. Music's back, baby. Uh, it's been great to be able to go out and experience live music once again in the old settings as we knew them. Real people making real music in real time to an audience of people who are elated at the sound and experience of people being able to express themselves through vibrations in the air once again. I've been very grateful for the opportunity to be able to go out and hear some really amazing shows over the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's really been a transcendent experience to be able to feel the energy once again of the musicians and the audience in a room, and uh, to be able to go back and reconnect with a lot of the musicians in New York whom I love and whose music I've missed so much over the last couple of months. There are a lot of things that I think before the pandemic lockdown, it was easy to take for granted. Things like the ubiquity of live music and the ability for people to express themselves in a real place in real time. But I hope that as we go forward, returning to society like a phoenix from the ashes, that we will remember to take with us a real appreciation for all of the music and the improvisation and the amazing art that we find around us all the time. I hope you guys are going out to hear some music. Here in New York City, there's a lot of clubs doing a lot of shows these days. Be sure to go out and support the musicians, hear some music, experience what it is to be a human being on planet Earth. Here in New York, we've got 55 bars doing shows all the time. Smalls, of course. Here in Brooklyn, we've got Wild Birds putting on a lot of really interesting shows. New venue, uh, amazing place. The Bushwick Public House in Bushwick, Brooklyn, has once again started the Monday Night Improvised Music Series with Stephen Gauchi, which is a really amazing series of improvised music, free music, and uh, a lot of great acts. So be sure to go check that out as well. Culture Lab LIC in Long Island City has been putting on shows this whole time, and they're always amazing. So be sure to go check that out. Always outside. They have an amazing little space out there, and the shows have been amazing. So be sure... To whenever you can, go out and check out some music, man, because it's been, woo, it's been really great to get back to it and to experience music with other people in real life as it was once upon a time. Magnificent, magnificent stuff. Speaking of venues, uh, Shapeshifter Lab has been doing a GoFundMe campaign to raise some money to support their club. They got hit pretty hard with the COVID lockdowns, and they are looking for a little support. So if you like Shapeshifter Lab, if you've been there, if you've experienced it, if you just want to help out, you got a little extra money and you want to help out, uh, you can go to GoFundMe.com, and you can search for Help Save Shapeshifter Lab and uh, send some money over to Matt Garrison and Fortuna and everybody over at Shapeshifter Lab, it's an amazing place, and I would like it if they can recover full force from this whole strange year. All right, let's jump right into a gang. This one's going to be a great one. My guest this week is drum legend, composer, and conceptualist Rakhalam Bob Moses. Rakhalam has had an astounding life as a drummer, playing and recording with Rasan Roland Kirk, Gary Burton, Dave Liebman, Pat Metheny, Steve Kuhn, Paul Blay, Tasiji Munoz, and many others. Rockalam has also released many amazing albums as a, as a leader that combine his unique voice as a composer and conceptualist with a free and personal approach to improvisation. Rockalam and I discuss his life growing up in New York City around Max Roach, Art Blakey, Charles Mingus, Eric Dolphy, and many others. His personal approach to composition and improvisation and his ongoing musical and spiritual journey. 
You'll also get to hear him illustrate his outlook on music through the drums in some really beautiful improvisations. I was really happy that he got to play some drums for us, and it's really amazing you get to hear what it is that he's all about. It was amazing to get to hear many of Rock Alam's stories and uh, to talk about his philosophies, and I know you're going to love it. So, without further ado, here he is, Rock Alam Bob Moses. It's great to have you. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Bob. It's great to see you, man. Yeah, yeah. good to see you as well. Always great to be a, you're here. always a good spirit, man. Definitely. I remember. Well, thanks. I yeah. appreciate that. You brought a lot of positivity and enthusiasm. And uh, we need that. Yeah. Well, I certainly learned a lot uh, doing the ensemble. Oh, right. Right. That's right. Uh, doing my ensemble. Yeah. You, I want to start at the beginning, okay? I want to go back. I, I feel like you grew up in a time and being in New York that was must have been amazing to be there, to be a part of all that music that was being made. Uh, yeah, I think it was a good time to be there. Yeah, definitely. Good we time. were talking about the other day, you, you started off in Queens, you grew up in Queens, and then eventually moved to Manhattan. Right. right. Sixth grade. Yeah. I told my parents I was going to run away from home if they didn't move to Manhattan. Sure. But when I was really young, Queens suited me well because I was into sports. And uh, it was all kind of ball field, Little League and Pop Warner League. I played sports all day long. I was actually pretty good for a relatively slow white guy, you know. Uh, I had a certain gift for it. Mm. And, um, but then, you know, I started getting into culture. And, you know, for culture, Manhattan was the place, not Queens. Sure, you know? yeah. And... Um, yeah, we first lived on 97, 97th Street, right between Broadway and, and West End. And there was all these great movie theaters there, the Thalia movie theater, where you see, see foreign films. This is, you know, late, early 60s. Mm -hmm. You see Ingmar Bergman films and Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and all that stuff. Um, yeah, it was a good neighborhood. Then we moved to a very, uh, actually, a, a historic building on, on uh, Central Park West. 101st Street, Central Park West, and in that building um, lived uh, Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, Art Blakey, Elvin Jones, Rasan Roland Kirk. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and little punk-ass Bobby Moses was in there <laughs> trying to learn how to play some drums, you know, trying to be being around that. And the people I'd see in the elevator, man, you know, see Eric Dolphy in the elevator, Booker Little he used to come oh, wow. up there. Yeah. I saw him play with Max's group, um, another great trumpet player. And, yeah. Uh, um, oh, yeah, man, Julian Priester, Clifford Jordan, Jimmy Garrison, Lee Morgan. I see all these people just in the elevator. You know, sure, yeah. Uh, going to one place or another. And Rasan actually, um, my parents, he was like another, he was kind of like another father to me, uh, you know. Uh, um, my parents signed the lease for him because... Um, the landlord 
looked at him and thought, is this guy going to pay the rent? Because he looked like he's from outer space, Rasan. He's <laughs> wearing all this weird leather and all these, uh, you know, sirens and shit hanging off of him right, and stuff. Right, sure. And, uh, and my parents said, oh, no, he's a successful musician. He's, he'll, he'll, you know, and so we vouched for him, signed the lease for him. Wow. And I spent more time in his house than my own house. Is Mingus, that right? Mingus, oh, yeah, I, was there. I spent all, all day with him there. And, and used to go out with him, too, and help him. Um, he, in those days, we had record stores, right? Kind of thing of the past, right? Sure, and, right. And uh, I would go with him into... Sam Goody's was the big one that, uh, and at that time in New York. Huge place, you know, uh, with albums. And he would make me read the liner notes to all these albums. Uh, you know, I became a speed reader I was, uh, you know, after that. And I remember saying to him, he wasn't Rasan then, he was just Roland. I said, Ro, why, you know, why do you need to write, to hear what all these white critics writing about the music, you know? And I just tell you who's on it, you know, the name of the record. Yeah. He wanted to hear everything. He was, he just wanted to know everything, wanted to hear everything. So I, got, I was reading all the liner notes. There was another place where I went to high school and, and, and Rasan came and played with our high school band. That was amazing, man, you know. Some of them, I, I'm still in touch with one of them guys named Joel Peskin. He's a saxophone player. He lives in L.A. Hmm. Um, but he was. We went to the same high school together, and we played. Rasan came over one time. But there was a record store near there, called the Jazz Record Center, and records were two dollars, and they'd play them for you. Oh, you could go in and listen to them. And that was two blocks when we went to high school. I hated school, and I usually didn't go. I used to cut school almost every day. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I used to walk the whole island because I had to pretend for my father that I was gone from like eight in the morning till four thirty, and uh, but I almost never went. You know, I really hated it, and uh, um, so I. But I spent at least spent a few hours a day in that record store where they play everything, and they had uh, uh, their motto was from bunk to monk. Um, and in those, day, in those days, Monk was avant-garde. That's uh -huh. like the, the, modern, the most modern stuff. And Bunk Johnson was early Dixieland. So they had all kind of stuff, including old blues. I, you know, I, I started hearing people like Big Bill Brunzi and, you know, Muddy Waters and all these Mississippi John Hurt and all this great music. And they'd play it for you. Mm. So I, and for two bucks each, I'd, I'd buy pretty much a record a day. Uh, I used to have thousands. I got rid of most of them. I'm down to about, like, the last 70 albums that I'm keeping, and even though I'm thinking of letting them go, because I hardly listen anymore. Sure. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that was a good time. Uh, uh, when, you know, when I lived on my own, when I left my parents, uh, I lived on Eldridge Street in the Lower East Side, and that, was, and that building had Jim Pepper, Larry Coriel, Chris Hills, Mike Knott, Joanne Brackeen, Charles Brackeen, Arthur Harper, the baseball, just happened to live in the same building. Yeah. So you'd step out from the building, it's like Charles Ives, you hear five, <laughs> five music coming from every, every, uh, yeah, that's why I first met Billy Hart, he came to Elger Street. And then I moved to, oh, that may, I'm listening, which came first? Maybe the, before that, I think maybe the very first place was on the Bowery, which is, if you know New York, it's a funky part, it's still where a lot of bums and homeless people, it's, it's it, it seemed it had gone ungentrified, although I'm sure that the loft that I used to live in, would, the rent would be like ridiculously high. Oh, I can't I even imagine. Yeah. But in those days, my rent was $52 a month. <laughs> and I had a roommate, so my share was $26 a month. That's amazing. And I lived on brown rice, 
every once in a while I'll mix a can of tuna in there with uh, and tamari, a little tamari. So uh, a lot of LSD. And, uh, and all we did was get high, play music, and, and have sex with hippie girls, which was much easier in those days. It was much, much, you know, I think it was much easier than it is now, uh, as far as I know. But anyway, so it was good times, a good time to be there. And then going to hear music, you know, uh, I used to go to this club called Slugs. That's the place where Lee Morgan got shot. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, there's a great documentary about uh, mm. that, w which features the woman who shot him, who is his ex-wife, yeah. and she's very sympathetic. You know, she just, you know, it's tragic what she did. She really regrets it. Yeah. You know, right. but he, but he wasn't acting right. You know, and she, she snapped and she took him out. Yeah. But I could have very easily seen that because I used to go there all the time. I go two or three nights a week. I go to club, the slugs, and sure. you know, it's hard for people of this generation to imagine, but. You could go there on a Tuesday night, no big deal, five bucks, and maybe you buy a beer or two over the course of the night. And you could see three or four sets. I think it went, they went till really late. And it's like a typical Tuesday night would be maybe, uh, say, Joe Henderson, Roy Haynes, Chick Corea, Eddie Gomez. And there'd be 30 people in the club, like no big deal. Yeah. The next wow. next night, it might, I remember seeing Blue Mitchell and and, and uh, Hank Mobley, uh, Bar uh, Cedar Walton, Sam Jones, Billy Higgins. Same thing, five bucks. It'd be forty people in the club. That's amazing. Like no big deal. Middle of the week. And so um, you know that was and, and then there was also different lofts that people used for music. Um, uh, Sam Rivers had a great place called Studio Ribby. Mm -hmm. It was on Rivington Street, very close to another place I lived on, Grand Street, off of the Bowery. Mm -hmm. um, Rivington Street, walking distance. That's the first place I heard Milford Graves play, which blew my head right off my neck when I heard that guy. I never heard drums play like that. Sure. Wow. A young, young Milford. I also remember hearing Cecil Taylor, Tony Williams duet at Ribby Studio. Oh, yeah, wow. And I have to say, young Tony playing free... Man, I think actually that's the best I ever heard Cecil Taylor was with Tony Williams, young Tony. The drumming <laughs> was just so symphonic and, and subtle. As uh, Tony got older, he became more uh, macho, you know, uh, like hitting hard all the time, fast, hard, you know. But in early days, he played with a lot of, uh, he had some of that, he would bang, but he, he had a, a, a subtle, you know, and it, uh, but also his speed, and just him and Cecil is amazing. Yeah, I saw a lot of those people. Uh, uh, Rashid Ali had a place called Ali's Alley. I saw a lot of music there. Hmm. Saw Rashid play many times. Um, slugs, I saw Albert Eiler. In fact, <laughs> the woman that my first, well, own, first and only wife, um, um, we were going on a date to see Albert Eiler at Slugs. And we never made it. We wound up in bed for three days. But, you know, <laughs> about a year later, Fair we got trade. married. So, but we eventually did get the slugs in here, Albert Island, you know. Wow. And I ran into her recently. And this is a, fu this is a funny story about being old, man. Uh -huh. This is how you know you're old, man. I went to this concert at the Berkeley Performance Center for Mike Gibbs, who's another dear friend, composer, great composer, uh, who used to teach at Berkeley and... and uh, they were honoring him, giving him a doctorate for his 80th birthday or something, you know. And um, I got an invitation, and they were going to play some of his music with the big band, you know, which is the best Berkeley 
hotshots, uh, students and faculty, you know. Mm -hmm. Gary Burton was there, who was my old boss who I hadn't seen. Bill Frizzell, who I hadn't seen in years. Well, they're all playing uh -huh. and come to honor. Actually, Fr Frizzell got a doctorate, too. Hmm. They make them wear their stupid, silly caps, and they look ridiculous. <laughs> right. so, we're going to give you this honor. That's the good side. But on the downside, you have to wear this ridiculous. Yeah, know, right. It's, hard. it's just, yeah. Frizzell was so, looked so embarrassed. He was like, he had this grin like, oh, God, <laughs> can't wait to take this thing off. Yes. But anyway, uh, I'm in the lobby at this event, and I see this old gray-haired woman. And I'm looking at her, I said, you look familiar to me. I think I know you. And... And she said, yeah, she looked at me, who are you? What's your name? And I said, I, said, oh, I told her my name. She said, oh, man, we were married for like 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't recognize, I, I kind of recognized her, but she didn't even recognize me. And, and, you know, it's when I, you know, when my memory of her, she was young and beautiful, Italian lady, Teresa Del Pozzo, beautiful, used to dress, like kill her. And, and she, now she's, you know, she, when I got married, I was 19, and she was 25 or 26. So when you're, oh, wow. when you're 19, it's, you feel good to be with a 25, 26-year-old woman, you know. Sure. Um, but now I, she's, you know, when I, I guess that event was like a year or two ago. She, I was 70, uh, she was 76 or 77, really old, gray-haired. Sure. You know, different person. Wow, that's something else. But we had a great we had a great talk, and I remember because she was so much more advanced than me in so many different ways. I learned so much from her, a very powerful woman. That's a whole that's a whole story in itself. Her, Teresa. But um, you know, when we got when we reconnected at the Gibbs thing, I said to her, I, thought, I want to thank you for all that you, she taught me about women's issues, about politics, about the whole deal. Mm -hmm. So much. Um, and she said, well, I, I, I got something from you, too. And I'm thinking, really? What, what could you have gotten from me? I was like this clueless, stoned-out hippie, just, you know, rolling through life, man, trying, trying to make it. And she said, oh, the music, the music, mm. because I brought her into the music. More. Sure. And she wound up having a, somewhat of a career in the music, not as a musician, as a manager. Mm. She managed Harold Vick and, uh, uh, we, and Compost, the group that we had, and, mm -hmm. and George Coleman and, and uh, Woody Shaw and Dexter, I think, uh, Dave Sanborn. She actually worked for Peter Tosh for a while. I got, okay. to, I got to see some Peter Tosh concerts sure. where he would sing, legalize it, and light up a big spliff in front of 10,000 people with the cops right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that band was amazing. That was Sly and Robbie, Sly, Sly oh, yeah. Dunbar on the, the drum and bass. So I got to see some of those concerts because Teresa worked for him. Mm, um, got something me. else. The one year they opened for the Stones. The Stones did a U.S. tour and, and Peter Tosh was the opener. So wow. they, they made some money, got some new equipment and stuff. Sure, no in, doubt. Including a wireless for the bass. And this was really hip because uh, uh, when they finished the set, Robbie was walking into the dressing room. You could see it. Somebody handed him a beer. He was drinking a beer, and he's still playing. And it's loud as hell, because his giant speakers are still going. And he played 15 minutes in the dressing room. After the band was left, you got like a 15-minute Robbie bass solo that was incredible. That's amazing. Might have been the best thing of the, of the... Because in a way, he was just jamming. You know, He wasn't having to play the, the exact arrangement. But there was something else, you know. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was uh, Teresa, man. We didn't even recognize each other. You know? Wow, that's something else, huh? But she was very kind, you know, uh, to me, uh, sure. looking back on it, because I think, you know, I was far from uh, 
very good husband, you know, in many ways, most ways. But mm. she, I'd um, imagine growing up in that that building with all those people, it's impossible not to absorb all that music going on as you were playing, uh, or as you're starting to get into it, or whatever. When, when did you start playing the drums, or what brought you to the drums in the first place? I started playing when I was about ten. Um, I have a picture downstairs uh, of the first shot of me actually playing the drums. Hmm. And it's interesting because I'm looking at it, I kind of look like I know what I'm doing. Or not that I know what I'm doing, but that I belong there. Yeah. I, I look like, yeah, this guy he looks like a drummer. Sure. Um, but the, my first drum came from Shaughnessy, from Ed Shaughnessy. You know who he is? I know the name, but I don't know. Oh, well, Ed Shaughnessy was great, great drummer, uh, mostly big band drummer, but he played small groups, played with Mingus, he played with a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. um, he was a studio drummer. He wound up being uh, becoming the drummer for The Tonight Show for many years, 20, 25 years. There was a guy who okay. was oh, named yeah. Johnny Carson. Yes, yes. Who was also a drummer and a music fan. He always had Buddy Rich on the show mm -hmm. a lot. In fact, you should YouTube this, uh, whoever watching, and for you, uh, I recommend it. If you want to see some crazy-ass drumming, there's one clip with Buddy Rich and Shaughnessy battling each other. Oh, wow. And I have to say, Shaughnessy holds his own. And even Buddy, who was very critical, he didn't like anybody, but he was, you know, he, he admired Shaughnessy. And he gave me, uh, Ed gave me my first drum, and he was my godfather. Hmm. Um, he, for most of his life, he lived in L.A., and we grew, we grew out of touch. But there was one picture we met at this Pasic thing. It's like percussion arts something or other. It's a big convention. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes on every year. I think I was invited once, and Shaughnessy happened to be there. I have this beautiful photo. It's a, it, it, the quality is bad. It's blurry, but it's a very warm, loving photo of like this grown up. I'm grown up now, hugging my godfather, the man who gave me my first drum. Sure. And also, I got to watch a lot of recording sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, Doc Severinsen, who's the high note special sure. trumpet oh, player, yeah. was a studio trumpet player, and I saw him. And Shaughnessy played together uh, in a studio date. Not, you know, he was before he was a famous. They became famous because on that show every night. He right. used to wear crazy suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah he always yeah. had a different crazy suit. Mm -hmm. um, There's a pretty good documentary on him out now. Well, he I could play, man. Oh, he could yeah. play. He could seriously play. You know, I would He's say still playing. music is is oh good. I think good, so. Good. I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, a little, some of the music a little corny for me, but it was. But he played his ass off. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, George DeVivier, the bass player. I remember going to sessions and seeing these guys playing and watch how they worked and how professional they were, how serious sure. they were, how to take care of business. Because mm -hmm. in the studio cats, you know, time is money. Yeah. And they got a lot riding on it, so you got to be, like, right on, you know. Right. Uh, anyway, that was uh, Shaughnessy, man. He was a great cat and super strong. Mm. Big, strong Irishman, you know. Mm. Shaughnessy. In sure. the early days, he used to drink a lot, and that was not good because sometimes he'd lose it. I remember one time he was so strong, he just punched his hand through a wall. Whoa. And it didn't even hurt his hand. That's how strong he was. Yeah. Well, it didn't seem to. You know. But the, he, it, it, most of his life, he was sober. He, he married someone who helped keep him in, that helps. in check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For some sure. men need that. Well, some people need that. Right, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he, and, you know, he did well. And towards the end, he made some pretty good money on The Tonight Show. He, had, he lived in a place called Calabasas, which apparently is really nice outside of L.A., mm -hmm. I guess. And he had horses and everything, you know. And I'm, I've never been to his house, but I'm sure it was quite nice. Sure. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he deserved it. Anyway, so he was my first guy to give me a drum. I'm forever, forever grateful.
to him. He mm. also, I saw pictures of him. In fact, the set that I was, that shows me playing was one of his sets, a prototype Slingland set. And it's interesting how it relates to my drums now because it has this little tambourine that he used as a second bass drum. Mm, okay. So he was already experimenting with different sounds. Even though, mo you know, he's famous for the big band with the double bass drum, the giant set, that kind of sound. Sure. But he was doing some interesting things. He had a creative, definitely a creative side, um, Shaughnessy. Mm. And he was uh, very complimentary of what I was doing. You know, I sent him some of my records as they came, like when Elephant's Dream of Music. So, so he understood I was a composer and a conceptualist, not just a drummer. You know? Sure. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he, uh, yeah, he appreciated that. Yeah. He's a good cat, man. Great Sp cat. Speaking of particular percussion sounds, I remember you telling us about uh, you were on Rip Rig and Panic yeah, as a kid, right? right? <laughs> yeah, just a t yeah, you had a role, a very right? small contribution, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that was an amazing day. That's my favorite Ross Hahn record. It's uh -huh. That's so. an amazing album. Because of the band, it was um, Elvin, Richard Davis, and Jackie Byard. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's um, amazing. Yeah, it's a great band. Anyway, he had this piece, I forget the name of it now, I think it might be something like Hippery, Slippery, Flippery, something like that, yeah. um, where he, he wanted to start it by playing a harmonic on the horn, and then at the end of it, he's going to hold this note that really sounded like a chord, you know, uh -huh. and, and then he wanted me to break a glass. Like, so the idea was that the note broke the window or something. Right? Sure, okay. And this was uh, Rudy Van Gelder's place uh, and Rudy was a you know famous engineer great engineer mm -hmm. um, but he was very anal and the place was like almost uncomfortably clean Rudy wore white gloves when he recorded and they didn't get dirty <laughs> that's pretty wild yeah it's wild and, and considering that all the ne'er-do-well musicians you know coming through there that the place would be a little more uh, <laughs> you know right, yeah. down home a little funkier no that place was like pristinely clean Hmm. He was a clean freak, you know, he was an anal cat. Yeah. Uh, and um, he was horrified at the idea of breaking the glass man, in the studio. You know, it's like, no way. And they, and, but Russ Hahn had that indomitable spirit. If he wanted something, he was going to get it, you know. And they went back, eventually, th this is what they came up with. He had a little backyard. This is in Englewood, New Jersey. He had a little, little bit of land with some tr tree or two. And... He, they found a rock. They went out in the garden uh, in this little spot, found a, a decent-sized rock, put it in the bottom of a, a metal trash basket, put the mic over the thing. Uh, my idea was going to throw the bottle. All the glass would stay in the container, and they'd be able to record it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we did the piece, man, and, and he gives me the cue. It's a note. And I go, smack. And... Uh, I thought it was a great take, not because of what I did, but just what they played. And he said, no, I, I want to do a second take. I want to do it again. Okay. He says, anybody got a, we need another bottle. Anybody got a bottle? And like, nobody had a bottle. Now, Elvin stepped up and goes, you need a bottle. <laughs> no problem, kid. And he pulls out like a fifth of, of whiskey. It was about three quarters full, half to three quarters. And he just goes like, it was like a scene from a movie. He just goes like this. <laughs> Hit 
Here you go, kid. <laughs> <laughs> on one breath. That's on crazy. one breath, man. Uh, and, you know, if you listen to that record, which I, I do recommend it, that's my favorite Rasan record. It's a great record. Mm -hmm. um, you can definitely hear the before and after Elvin did that because he was always very loose uh, around it, you know. After that, he was real, you know, you, they were, you know. <laughs> And, and I remember Rasan had one tune that started in 4-4, four, four, but it went into 7-4 on the bridge, something like that. Mm -hmm. And Elvin, after downing that bottle, uh, he was having trouble with it or something. And, and Rasan said, hey, Bobby, Bobby, play that, play, go on the drum, show Elvin how it is. And I said, oh, I, <laughs> I don't think so. Really. He said, no, come on, Bobby, come on, Bobby. So I did, I, you know, I could play because I'd heard, I'd been at rehearsals, I knew how it went, you know. Mm -hmm. And Elvin's kind of looking down at me like, <laughs> I'm sorry, Elvin, please don't be upset. He, he made me do it. And, I play. and of course, you know, you hear how he plays it, it's unbelievable. I still, I don't think he knew it was in seven or the bridge, but it's just natural, it's just great, man. Yeah. You know, it's loose, he just plays through it. And it's like a, a beautiful uh, waterfall of drumming, you know. Um, yeah, so these are great experiences, you know. I think uh, um, the, the being in the in the room with the drummers uh, in that house with the drummers, um, Mingus used to come over too and play duets with me on the piano. Oh, is that right? I was like thirteen. He lived across the park. Oh yeah. My dad helped with that too because on Fifth Avenue, he was afraid they wouldn't rent to a black person in those days. Mm -hmm. um, wow. So he had my dad. Racism. Of course, of course. Yeah. No, no, not That's, why. I mean, wow. It's, it's amazing well, yeah. your parents, you know, your father was helping. Right. Well, you know. he did that. My, my, my house was kind of like an uh, a aid station for all kinds of musicians. And uh, Mingus had huge appetites. He'd come. We, we used to get, in those days, we'd, you'd get seltzer bottles delivered. They'd put a, a big wooden thing with a bunch of, and, mm. and syrup. You okay. Or you want chocolate syrup, you want grape, you want, uh, and you, so you make your own soda. Sure. Okay. Interesting. If you want it really sweet, you put more syrup. You want it less, more seltzer. Right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he would come, and we had these huge glasses. I don't know why. We had these giant things. They're kind of like German beer steins, but they're not, you know, they would, and Mingus would come and, and make these ice cream sodas. Like this much, <laughs> with four scoops of ice cream. He'd put then he'd make it, you know, chocolate or with, with vanilla ice cream or strawberry with orange soda, you know. And he would down three or four of them in an afternoon. That's crazy. Like one of them, you would die. You'd go into yeah. diabetic shock. I'm a diabetic. It would knock oh, me yeah, out, yeah. man. Oh, it would knock me out. I'm not a diabetic. I would, I, you know, put me. I'd have to go to the hospital. Yeah, right. And, and Mingus used to down those things. Uh, yeah, so people came over, and I, you know, we had all kinds of people. Ken McIntyre, Ken Edgar Bateman. Oh, okay. This is Edgar Bateman. That's uh, oh, where is he? Oh, he's over there. But this is a painting of Edgar Bateman uh -huh. and me, actually. Huh. Um, greatest drummer I ever heard. Edgar sure. Bateman. Um, How, so let me ask you this: How is there's a Mingus is such a sort of a um, he gets a certain reputation for being volatile or being yeah, he you know. Was. But he, but he could be. He must have been kind to you, and he was you know, very kind to me, man. Very kind to me, and he. Um, I even argued with him once, and he got a kick out of that because <laughs> very few people argued with him. Sure. He was physically like strong, like Superman. Yeah. He, I saw him take a metal bar and just bend it in his, with his hands. Whoa. Yeah. Like that. Rasan too, like seriously strong, um, like superhuman. Shit. 
Hmm. Wow. Um, physically, you know. Sure. Um, so, you know, yeah, I rem you know what, what it was, and it was kind of funny, uh, looking back, he, I, he, was, he was saying to me something like, Bobby, you gotta learn how to play sloppy, man. You, you don't want to wind up like one of them white studio drummers or something, which, you know, if Mingus could see me now, he'd have no, no, wor no worries about that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I never play anything perfect in my life, you know. I think i pretty sloppy, you know, as it goes. But, uh, you know, and I argued with him when I was 13 or something, and I said, but Mingus, I don't even know how to play clean yet. You're telling me to play sloppy. I'm just a beginner, you know. He said, no, how are you going to learn? But he got a kick out of it that I talked back to him. And, of course... Later on, I, I knew clearly what he meant. You know, I knew I knew what he meant. You know? mm -hmm. uh, there's a point where if it's too clean or too correct, it doesn't sound good. Sure. That's why certain classical people have a hard time playing jazz music or any kind of black form, uh, funk, R and B, African music. Um, they have to unlearn the training. Sure. To do it, they can do it. And musically, they, there's no reason why they couldn't. They have all the technique and the knowledge. You know. But, uh, yeah, they're too clean. I remember a few students I had like that who, who were classically trained. They played every stroke, both hands moved exactly the same, you know. No, you move hands different, you know. Sure. Different sounds. And, uh, anyway, I, I understood totally what he meant. Um, uh, Mingus, he was totally right about it. I just uh, didn't get it at the time. But, but uh, you know, he was very kind. I mean, he loved my father. He loved uh, my dad, Richard Champa. Champalodro, uh, and um, he'd come over all the time for aid and support. He used to talk like a black James Joyce. You know, hmm. try to read James Joyce, it's yeah. like so abstract that just, what the, what's he talking about? Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. you might sort of have an idea. That's the beauty of it. Everybody would read it and think something else, maybe sure. have their own idea. Well, that's how he talked spontaneously. It's like a really abstract, free form. That's why I know for a fact that the book that came out that he was supposedly wrote, somebody okay. wrote that. Okay. Because it's too normal. It's too no His speech was not like that. I saw a few pages of the original book and it was like James Joyce, man. It was like nobody would have understood it, man. man. I'm sure the publishing company said, no, we can't. We can't <laughs> what are we going to do with this? Yeah. yeah man, that's a trip. So they got some guy to write it so it sounds like a, like a normal person speaking more or less, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he was like that and uh, a, a great character, you know. Sure. Um, but, he, yeah, he could be tough. And um, he, he, when he played live, uh, he played one club for a whole year in the same place. Nobody does. Who does that now? Right. And yeah. I, used, I used to go every Sunday. And I would sit in. There would be hardly anybody there. It would be the matinee. Wow. Sunday matinee. I could go on the Sunday because uh, there was no uh, alcohol. Was so that right? When oh, you're underage, right yeah, and I was clearly underage. I was 12 or 13 or 14, you know. Sure. Uh, Sunday matinee, kids could come to us. Well, I was the only kid there, but uh, sure. you know, kids were allowed. Huh. And uh, usually some point in the afternoon he would play. Uh, his, his steady band was Eric Dolphy, Ted Curson, Mingus, and Danny Richmond. Mm -hmm. But all kinds of other people would occasionally join him. Sure. You never knew if it was going to be just the quartet. Or I saw Booker Irvin there. I saw John Handy. I saw uh, Jackie Byard, I think, uh, Nico Bunick, another piano player. So, um, so different people would come in, but he would put, and he, he often stopped the band in the middle of a tune at a live gig. Again, who does that? Sure. Um, he, I remember one time uh, playing something, and he got on the trumpet player, who was great, Ted Curson, great mm -hmm. trumpet player. Um, he said something like, he just stopped me, he said, 
This is a ballad, not a blues. Okay, conceptual. You know, sure. Played it again. So, and, and you know, that kind of breaks all the normal rules of show business, which you, know, yeah. you, you don't show that the stuff you go through right. you know, at the end. You don't, show, you don't show your warts or your mistakes, you know. Um, but I thought, this is great. When do, how special is this? If you get a chance to see how they work on the music and how they improve it, and even if they stop and play the same tune three times, you know, for me as a musician, um, that was better. I mean, that was like such a great lesson. And of course, they did plenty of times. They played without stopping. You know, it wasn't like they stopped right, all the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember in my ensemble, I remember I got some bad marks from some of the students because they thought that I stopped it too much. Because uh, you know you're invited to make comments at the end oh, of the yeah. year about your about your teacher about your uh, leader of the group, and uh, I think many of them felt that way. But see again, I was coming more from. It wasn't important to finish the tune, like we're doing a gig. It's more like get it better. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you do, and almost every time I stopped it, what I said made it better. Sure. Most of the time, mm -hmm. you know, it was, um, uh, it was always the attempt anyway. You know. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, you know, that to me is, is not a big deal. In fact, that was uh, very instructive to see him do it. But, he, you know, he could be hard on the people, too. I mean, he would say things, you know. He, w he wasn't tactful. Sure. Uh, I, yeah. I hopefully always try to be tactful if I have suggestions or, or things that, um, you know, I, I'm kind of blessed and cursed simultaneously with having a, my main talent in music, I think I can say, is... Uh, a composer, overview, mm -hmm. you sure. know, the arranger, the composer, I see the whole picture. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times I know what the bass player should be doing instead of what they're doing. Sure. Or how a horn should phrase the melody or something. If everything's ahead, it might need to lay back or it might need more, ex you know, just mm -hmm. to make it really better, you know. Sure. So I hear these things. And if I'm in the right situation, I'm not shy about sharing it, you know. Um, sure. I'm, all, kind, all through my life, people said I'm too honest and stuff. I've tried to learn over the years when it's appropriate to speak and when not to. Sometimes, if you're on a gig and you're talking to people about, they get intimidated or they shut down. You know, so I've learned to try to read that. Mm -hmm. But I always felt if 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 you if you're not if you're too afraid to talk about the music and critique it among yourself, um, that leaves really little chance of it getting better. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always like to feel if we're playing three sets, the third set should be better than the first set. Sure. And if we play a couple of nights, the second night should be better than. The... So you know, the two times that it happens, I, generally, if if I feel it's important, I'll I'll, I'll ask the bass player or something. To, Do you mind if I talk to you? I have some things I'd like to share. I think it would help. Is that okay? And, and usually they'll say yeah. Yeah. I remember one bass player. He was we were playing standards, and he walked through every tune. And I'm thinking. That's not what I'm playing. Yeah. You know, I'm playing the song. There's all these resolution points. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of the, most in jazz, mostly and a four, a lot of and a four. Sure. So he's hitting one all the time. He's he's an eighth note behind me all the time. Sure. It's not that we have to be together all the time, but we were never. And and a lot of times they you know he would just I think they just go on automatic pilot like that's yeah, what I'm supposed sure. to do mm -hmm. instead of actually listening, tuning into my phrasing. So I started singing him different songs during the break and how the song the melody itself 
suggests certain phrasing, cross the bar phrasing, you know? Yeah. And, and you could hear it, because it's not that hard to hear. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? If you're yeah. paying attention, it's pretty obvious. And we went from like one first set, like no, nowhere together, to being like 90% together in one set, just because yeah. I had that. And then the second set, the third set, if we did, was even better, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's not like he has to catch me all the time. The other yeah. thing, too, with, with thinking of the time as quarter notes, it almost always tends to slow down a lot, too. Mm. Sure. It's already slower. Right, and, sure. And low gear, it's just, it's not how I'm playing. Anyway, yeah. I'm, if you play with a drummer who's playing that way, then I guess it might fit. But uh, yeah. most of the drummers, the drumming that, you know, the, when it comes to jazz, that, that I come out of, Elvin, Roy Haynes, Jack DeJanette. Tony Williams, all these guys, you know, they play that way across the bar. They're not playing like off a quarter note time. Sure. And, and most music, including jazz, if you dance to it, you find that it's almost all two, a two feel, half note feel. Yeah. Well, there's different kinds of half note feel, and every song and every band might have a different version. It may sometimes be quarter note feel. That happened, but I, to me, it's like 90, 95% uh, half note feel. Mm -hmm. so. And, and But again, a lot of the musicians, we were talking about this earlier, who, who only learn in school and take it all from books, they don't ever dance to the music. Sure. So they no, might know the 990th thing about jazz, but they don't know the first thing. Sure. Which uh -huh. is, it's not in four, it's in two. Yeah. I remember I found a clip for somebody. With a lot of the young drummers, their, their deficiency is the ride a lot of times. Huh? So I figured, well, you know, it's one thing to listen to it, Another thing to see it, you know, you see good ride might help. Mm -hmm, sure. I remember going to everyone watch the drummers ride, you know. and uh, so I thought, well, who had good ride? Well, first name to come to mind was Jimmy Cobb, who I mm -hmm. think just recently passed. Obviously, mm -hmm. great ride. He's on kind of blue. You know? Sure. Uh, so I found a clip uh, uh, to share with the students. You know, YouTube. Now it's a miracle. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was Jimmy Cobb with Coltrane. Um, Winton Kelly and Paul Chambers. And they were playing this blues walking, I think. And definitely two fields. I forget how that, but something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and yeah. it's, this obvious two feel, sure. and then it comes to the second chord. They start walking mm -hmm. for the solo. Sure. I see Paul Chambers' foot. One and three. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So sure. I tell a student, I said, look, there it is. Don't believe Bob Moses. I may not know much about jazz. I think I came towards it, you know. I don't know. I started a little bit with it, but I went, you know, I'm not, I don't even consider myself a great jazz drummer. I hardly ever play that kind of music anymore. Uh -huh. I, play, I play improvised music. Sure. If, mm -hmm. you, if you call that jazz, then I'm still playing jazz. Yeah. But in terms of the tradition of swinging and standards and, you know, what Wynton Marsalis would call jazz, I don't do that. Yeah, sure. Hardly. I mean, if someone calls me, I'm happy to do my best, you know. Right. Um, but anyway, you know, um, 
I said, but but Paul Chambers, man, you should take his word for it. Right, yeah. You know? And for there sure. it was. There's so much more, the time, do, da, do, did, is based on that. Yeah. In most cases. Mm-hmm. Again, you listen to every piece as its own. There was some music that was quarter notes, but generally it was like really old style swing, like, what's uh, that? Flying home, shit like sure, that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the bassy stuff had the quarter note, you know, mm-hmm. pulse. Uh, they used to, the Lindy Hop, they used to dance to you know, with a quarter note. Right. But then the quarter note was driving, man. Sure. It definitely never slowed down. Yeah, Mingus used to actually tap quarter notes, but his foot was so fast and so strong it never slowed down. He played the fastest tempo. Sure. I, I was at the first meeting of Rasan and Mingus. My dad drove him huh. from our. We lived on Central Park West, across the park. Mingus was around the same street level, but on the other side of the park. He said, "I forget how you get through. There's certain roads that go from yeah, east yeah. to east. Mm-hmm. You get through." Um, and we took him there, obviously, because Roland was blind since he was two, mm-hmm. so he couldn't drive, although he wanted to. He kept, he always tried to get someone to let him drive, and fortunately, <laughs> nobody did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But like that Al Pacino in yeah, that movie. Yeah, Scent of a Woman. Yeah, That's he does. Right, yeah. There's a couple of blocks in the Ferrari. Yeah, yeah right. I'm sure Roland would have loved it, man. He, he, he really wanted to. If anybody could have pulled it off besides Al, I think Roland would have got it. Yeah, for but, sure. But uh, anyway, so we drove him, and that was an amazing meeting. Um, the first thing when he started playing, he hit three horns at once. Yeah. And when Mingus heard the sound, he fell off the piano stool. <laughs> and he was close to 300 pounds at the time. So when he hit the ground, the, the paintings on the wall shook. Yeah. But he liked it. That yeah, was, yeah, it yeah. made him jump, you know. But then he picked up the bass, and it was challenge time. And that's what those guys used to do. They were hard. They, you know, they, they're out to kill you, to embarrass you. People think, I'm hard. No, I'm softy, man. Sure. I'm a what, what do you mean? Give me an example. Tempo. Me Oh, okay. He said, okay, I, I, what was the t- I forget the tune. It might have been Get Happy. Mm-hmm. But I'm, the, I'm not exaggerating. The quarter note was... <laughs> so your eighth note was... And Roland went right there. And he's tapping his foot, like, and it's not slowing down. And, and he got through it. That's and amazing. Mingus smiled and said, you got the gig. All right. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's put him, the te- put him to the test. Yeah. Yeah. They used to do that. They challenge. Bird is famous for doing that shit. People come in to sit in, and all of a sudden they do the tune Cherokee and B or something. Put right. some really hard key or F sharp that it's never played in. You know. Uh huh. Um, you know to cut out the pretenders. You know. The, for sure. The, the wannabes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. George Coleman was famous for doing that. Played crazy fast tempos and really hard keys. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it was a, I, I'm not a, I don't approve of it, but it was part of the culture. Sure. Yeah, I, I don't recommend it, uh, anything. I'm, that's one thing that I'm glad has not carried through. But it was interesting to watch it, and it definitely strengthened people up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was playing with Rasan in Philadelphia, and I was just a kid. I, I was re- talking about being in over my head. Um, I was in a black club in the hood, too. I was the only white person in the joint, I think. But Dave Liebman, who was my earliest playing friend, but mm-hmm. he wasn't the great Dave Liebman then, he was just a beginner, you know? Sure. Um, was visiting Philly to look at colleges. 
I think he was thinking about going to Temple University. I believe that's in Philly, you know. Mm -hmm. and, so, and I happened to be playing there, so he's going to come see his buddy play with Rasan in the, in the club. And I remember, um, so I he came backstage during the break, and I said, Roland, this is my good friend David. He's a young saxophone player. He's a beginner saxophone player. Uh, wondering if he could sit in with you. And Roland said, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. And he got on the stage, and I don't know how he knew, but Roland was a very psychic, extremely sensitive cat. He, said, he asked Liebman, he said, how many Coltrane records you got? And Levy is honest, he ain't gonna bullshit, you know. Levy said, I don't know, 40, 45? And this I knew, uh-oh, we're in trouble. He goes, how many of my records you got? Uh, oh, he's not honest, so three, you know. Okay. And he, he, I remember he called, all the things you are, modulate up a half step every four bars. And he, again, he's tearing it up, right? Yeah. Liebman solo. No, he's like humiliated, man. You know, it's cold. It's cold. Sure. It's cold. We, we used to make joke about that sometimes. He, he, he played the saxophone like Venus de Milo. Yeah, <laughs> I <had> no arms. <laughs> or like you're in a straight jacket. You know? Yeah, um, but wow, you know, else. but Liebman being the kind of cat that he is, he said, okay, you know, to, to himself, he said, okay, you got me, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna learn every tune in every key, and yeah. if anybody pulls that shit on me again, I'll be ready. And yeah. he, I, I'm, you know, he he became a bona fide. Uh, Jazz master and just master of music. I mean, he really knows knows his stuff. Leave me, so yeah, a scholar, and he worked really hard, you know, to become great. Sure. Um, but yeah, people used to do that, man. That's that's kind of, that's cold blooded. That's, right? that's cold, man. Yeah. Right, that's in front of a man. whole audience of people too. Right, you know? sure. That's something else. Yeah. There's one more person I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you knew Eric Dolphy. Yes, loved Eric Dolphy, as a player and as a person. Uh huh. Yeah, one of the best people I ever met. Man. He was very uh, humble and polite, mm. uh, which was not necessarily the usual M.O. of jazz musicians. In those sure. Days. Um, a lot of them were very brash, uh, and they're faults, man. You know, they can be very aggressive sometimes, uh, angry, pissed off, uh, um, often behave badly with women and things like that. Um, oh, Eric was sweet, man. He was sweet and very humble. He had a lot of self-doubt. Uh, which, uh, you know, the, a lot of the criticism that he got, he really took it to heart. Yeah. Uh, I, actually, the only time I ever wrote an angry letter to Downbeat in my life was because somebody had panned Eric Dolphy. And I told him, I wrote in, this man is a great, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. This is some of the best music you'll ever hear. Mm -hmm. The man's a master, you know. Sure. Um, yeah, that's the only time I bothered to now. People write silly shit. I say, hey. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of that yeah, out there. Whatever. Well, you know, yeah. They're entitled to their opinion. Um, but he was, uh, and he was very, you know, he took an interest in me, which, I, you know, it's hard for me to even comprehend that because I, I, was no, I was just a young punk trying to learn how to play. In those days, I was trying a lot of instruments, you know. Mm -hmm. First instrument was vibes, actually. First oh, okay. gigs I ever did was on vibes. Oh, interesting. Um, sure. Drums pretty soon because I got the drums from Shaughnessy from the one. But, I, you know, I played piano. I had a trumpet for a while because I got one at summer camp. I played trumpet. I played bass, same thing. At summer camp, I got to play bass, and we'd play little classical pieces with the bow. Mm -hmm. I loved that. I, if I had a, took a bass home, I would have kept playing it. But sure. these were things. Um, 
Anyway, uh, and, and Dolphy was fascinated by that. Bobby, what are you playing? Vibes and trumpet and bass and drums. And, you know, and I'm thinking, well, I said, but Eric, ba badly, you know, I mean, I, can, I can't play any of them, but yeah, I'm messing around, you know. And he, so that, that just, uh, he was even interested. I also saw him play a lot with Train, and that was beautiful. Uh, Eric, I saw Eric with Mingus, and I got to play with him a few times. Wow. You know, uh, as a kid. And I had a dream, uh, it was a few years back, but it was a beautiful dream where um, Eric was interacting with the me of now, mm. the grown-up rock alarm. Yeah. And, and he was hearing how I play, and he was saying, yeah, Bobby, I like, how you, I like what you're doing. It's different. He said, yeah, I never would have thought you'd go like this. You know, I didn't know how, what you'd be, but you know, this is really good. It's different, man. You know, he, was, he liked it, gone in my own direction, you know. And um, and we played in the dream like the Dolphy of old with the with the me of now, or if a few years back, uh, and it was it was beautiful in my dream. For a while, we there's a dear friend of mine, uh, Jim Warshower, who we call him Kritavi. He's um, he he buys and sells horns on eBay, saxophones. He's a saxophone player. Mm -hmm. um, that's how he makes his his living. And. He had Dolphy's old alto for quite a few years. He didn't, it didn't belong to him, but someone had entrusted him to have it. Mm -hmm. So he would come over and play that horn. Wow, isn't that something? Uh, and, and, and invite certain players, if they were of a certain level, if they wanted to use it, he would, if he could, he'd bring it over for them. Mm -hmm. I did a duet record with Alan Chase, and Alan plays Dolphy's horn. Yeah, that. I was listening to that. It's yeah. a beautiful, yeah. beautiful record. Alan's amazing. Alan Alan's is amazing, amazing man. Player. And a couple of tunes that made the cut of the record, he played the Dolphy horn. Wow. Um, and uh, that horn had a vibe already, man. It had music already in it, man. There's no question. Because people play different when they play that horn. Sure. And anyway, he, he recently made a deal to um, sell it to some museum in Arizona. Seemed like nice people, and they were gonna take care of the horn and, and keep it playing, too, with mm. the right people that still use it. Um, so it went, but before it went, he decided that uh, he wanted to record one time. So he came over, and Gandas, my engineer, we did a duo record with Kurtavi, where he was only played the Dolphy alto. Hmm. And it was a very funky-looking horn. I mean, it wasn't clean and shiny and gold. You know, look, this thing had been played because he—he was like trained. He was one of those guys. He played 18 hours a day. Sure. You know? And um, and you know, it was interesting. The shape when he played, he he kind of leaned forward. He played. Like, he had this kind of leaning yeah. forward thing. Uh -huh. So the horn had taken on that shape. Interesting. And the the. Um, the keys of the, I don't, you know, what, I don't know what they're called, but, you know, the little yeah, pearl. Key, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, the caps. Yeah, caps. yeah, when yeah, your yeah. finger hits the, it meets the horn, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they were worn down to almost nothing from sweat. Yeah. You know. Wow. Because um, he had played it, played that horn hard. But I, I noticed that, um, you know, it's interesting. Some people, there was a one young student, he was very talented. He was a friend of my ex-roommate, uh, Armir, a good kid, man. He could play, too, a uh, saxophone player. But... You know, uh, some of them, they don't let the horn affect them. They just do what they already do. Sure. But most of the people, they get that horn, they start playing different. Yeah. In other words, they get take what the horn gives them. Sure. And, and invariably, I would say that uh, when people play that horn, they play more raw, more out, and at the same time, more bluesy. Mm -hmm. And that was very much Dolphy, like way out there, but really bluesy. Yeah. Um, you know, really rooted in the, in the down home. Um, 
Uh, yeah, he was, um, you know, my favorite on all his instruments, alto, bass, clarinet, flute, best flute player I ever heard. Amazing, And he, yeah. I used to see him play bass, clarinet with train, with, with no mic, really, and be heard over wow. Elvin. That's I, I used to play bass clarinet a little bit, and it's a beautiful instrument, but it's not generally a loud horn. No, you got to... It's kind yeah. of a subtone. I mean, mm -hmm. you can mic it well, you know, so sure. it's loud, but on its own, it's not as loud as a saxophone or right. a trumpet, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, he played it, like, great, but also loud with Elvin, and the young Elvin was bashing, the drums was loud. And, uh, you know, I got to hear him play that. He played it with Mingus, too, you know. Um, so I'm really glad I knew him. You know, when I lived on that building in Central Park West, um, it overlooked the park. And I was on the fourth floor. Max Roach was on the 14th floor. I spent a lot of time up there, too. Mm -hmm. um, Max and Abby were close with my parents. Abby kept the relationship for many years after. Um, I look out in the park. And I could see Eric Dolphy playing flute, sitting on a rock. He would play with the birds. Mm. And you could barely hear it because it's New York street traffic and noise and cars and people. But I could just barely hear this little flute like wafting in the, in the air. It was so magical. He looked like some genie or something way out sitting on a rock. Uh, so I'm, I never forgot that, watching mm. him play a flute in the park with the birds. And his ear was so attuned that he, um, he could play what the birds were singing and get them get them interacting with him that's amazing because he could hear their intervals yeah uh, the composer messian obviously studied birds uh, ch really checked him out but he's written pieces for orchestra that sound like a flock of birds mm -hmm. it's the most organic uh, sounding classical music i ever heard sure messian um but anyway dolphy was into that too um yeah a special cat nobody played like that man and uh no. Uh, like I say, very polite, very humble, really beautiful spirit. When he passed, that broke my heart. And maybe even more than Train. Because uh, it was personal with Dolphy, you know. Train, I never really talked to. I saw him a lot. He knew who I was, because, I mean, he recognized me. Because one time he saw me looking into the window at the half note, he just gave me this beautiful smile, like a, like a recognition. He said, yeah, that's the kid that's here every night. Sure. I used to go see Train every night if he was playing. Six nights, I was there six nights usually. Mm. And, um, but Dolphy, you know, I actually got to know a little bit and talk with and he, you know, he was, uh, I think he was in the house. He's certainly in the building a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that, when he passed, that broke my heart. Yeah. I was working a gig in the Catskills for the summer with Dave Liebman. Okay. And, and I was like 16. And, and when, when, I, when Dolphy passed, I went a little crazy. I have to say, I went, I went kind of nuts, you know. Mm. Boy, what a shame. Yeah, I don't know. It just it affected me very hard, man. Um, he was too young. Trained, too. But, uh, sure. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. yeah. But I did, you know, we did meet again in the dream. In the dream yeah, world, right. In the spirit world. That's something. Uh, yeah, great cat. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your, you really seem to bring your personality in playing all these different instruments. Whatever you're going to play, you have that, you know, you can... It seems like it's a fluid thing, but I, I noticed on um, I've listened a lot to Bittersweet in the Ozone. Oh yeah. And uh, I only s realized recently that it's Billy Hart playing drums, but you're playing all these other percussion instruments and various things on it. Very little I played really. I played some vibes and I played piano. I mostly conducted it. Okay, interesting. Because it's, it's written in in such a way that um, 
is a section A and goes to section B, but section A is an open amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to say section A is going to be two minutes and 23, so it's going to be, you know, 89 bars and then we go to section. No, it's open. And so I wanted to be able to, we're in A, we're in A, time for B, bang, like right there. And it's very hard to conduct that from the drums. That's what sure. I realized. Mm -hmm. But first of all, you have to take your hand away from drumming to cue the people. And some, a lot of times you're playing a live gig, the drums are often in the back. Mm -hmm. So if you have three or four horns, five horns, whatever, you, you cue and maybe one horn gets the cue and he kind of passes it down the line and they all, oh, all five, we all, that's eight bars too late. Sure. I couldn't stand those extra eight. I want B, I want B, like right now. So I found it was much easier. There's a tune on there, it's an open blues. It's called a Brophilia, I think, The Love of the Brown. And, and it's D minor blues, but it's open in the sense that uh, how long the one chord is. It's, it's kind of like the old blues guys did. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. you know, now I found that at NEC, for example, or probably any music school, very hard to do that, man. Almost yeah. impossible because people don't watch that closely. Sure. And they want to know beforehand how many bars right. before we go to the four chord. Everyone wants to know beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, it would have been very hard, but we pulled that off. That was like one take. And I remember I had the, the uh, like the, it was kind of a line, like a D minor, like, you know, I didn't know when, Yeah. but everybody caught it. There's Gomez on bass, and it's a beautiful tune, it's a great take, totally organic, so that was easier to lead from the piano. Sure. In general, you know, if you're if you're doing music like that, where you're trying to give a melodic or harmonic cue, it's easier from a piano, or the vibes or something, rather than the drums. Yeah. Very hard for me to show on the drums. I'm going to the four chord now. You know. Sure. Um, so most of it I just conducted, and and Billy Hart was the perfect. In fact, I listened to that record. That's one of my favorite records. It's my er earliest one as a leader, or almost. It's the second one, really. But the first one as a composer, conceptualist, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, first one was more like a collection of all the kinds of ways that we played, you know, kind of an eclectic mess of a record. But this, the first record, it was kind of like a vision, like the whole yeah. record, like a story, like a movie or something. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, yeah, Billy... He, he played it. I mean, I, I would not have sounded as good on that record at that time. It, 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 by, by now, maybe I could have done what he did back then. Because um, he had this perfect... Billy is like a... He's like a cat. It, you, you could knock him off the counter, they land on their feet. Yeah. He's like that. And there was a couple of places where the music went, like, just took a quick left. It was like going along. <laughs> and he's perfect. He's perfect. Sure. And, and he didn't make any rehearsal. And I knew he wouldn't. Yeah, and I knew he didn't need to, and and his drumming is just perfect. And the first tune that kind of features the drums is, the drumming is really strong on that. And and I made sure that he was mixed really well too, because I uh, you know I hear a lot of records. Not, I've heard a few records where he's a sideman, and they're great records. But I I was like, oh, I'd like to hear more drums, man. You got yeah. Billy Hart. Let me hear some drums, you know. So I made sure since it's my record and I'm mixing it that that his drums was big sounding on the, on the, on the first piece where he's kind of featured. Um, no, but he played great, man, on that. That was such a good choice that, that he was willing to do that, you know, too. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we go way back. I mean, he knew me when I lived on Eldridge Street, you know. Mm. I was up to be, like, mid-60s. 
He's come visit that building. He was playing with Jimmy Smith then. The organ oh, wow. Player. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, Billy Hart. He's, you know, he's in my top ten all-time great, I would say. Mm. Yeah. And he's still doing person, it. person, too. Yeah. Jabali. Yeah. Something else. When you, there are a couple of records that you did around that time that are sort of, I don't know if you, they're not large ensemble in the sense that we think of it now, but there's a lot of different, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different musicians. Yeah. Are you, were you thinking as you were going, these are the people that I want on this? Or were you thinking of a certain instrumentation? Or what was sort of the, well, that record in particular, what was it that was sort of the inspiration behind, well, this, this is the way I want to do it? Well, I think of that and Elephant's Dream of Music and yeah. some of the other ones from that kind of time frame. Well, Those are all beautiful records. You know, I, I always try to get the best people I could get and be aware of what each person's strength was. Like, like certain people, like Liebman, is always going to play great, but it's always going to sound like Liebman. Mm -hmm. He has what he does. You know? and, and that's quite wide, you know, but it's still, you, you know. But now Hino... Masahino, the trumpet cornet mm -hmm. player, yeah. he's like a great character actor. You know, like uh, Meryl Streep or De Niro, each role they're like a completely different person. Yeah. Right? Clint Eastwood is always Clint Eastwood. Right? Sure. Certain but we love him. He's great at it. You yeah, know, we don't right. mind. If you want Clint Eastwood, that's the guy. You know? So Liebman is more like Clint Eastwood. Uh, but Hino is like, I mean, on one of the tunes on Elephant When Elephants Dream, I said, I, I want you to play as if you're in the, we're in the 1920s, and bebop hasn't been invented yet. So you never heard Dizzy Gillespie or Clifford Brown or Miles or anything. Like and he played like that. So you give him a poetic expression uh, idea, and he would get totally into that. And he has his own unique, he has a, he's a strong personality, but he's more like a character actor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, with Elephant's Dream of Music, the concept it kind of... It evolved from two different concerts that I'd seen fairly close to each other. And one of them was a Chick Corea band. It was, a, and it was one of his fusion bands. And it was an excellent band. I think Steve Gadd was playing drums with him. Um, and it was a super tight Latin fusion jazz, super slick, killing the audience, you know, design like SWAT team. The mission killed the audience, and they, they accomplished <laughs> it. Right? Sure. Um, but what I noticed was there was very little um, freedom, or mm -hmm. really breath, of room for the cats to really play. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, well, this is great. Like, every note is kicking. There's not enough freedom then. For me, you know, for my taste. Sure. To each his own, you know. Um, but then I saw a concert with the Art Ensemble, and it was also seemed out of balance the other way. It was like two hours of a lot of meandering around and out of the, you know, a lot of uh, noodling, creative noodling. And I thought out of the two hours, it was maybe like 15 minutes that were really like choice. Sure. I think with any music, if it's completely free, I mean, no composition, which is a lot of what I do these days, the, and the end goal is you want it to sound composed, like you meant every single note. There's not one extra note there's nothing missing and nothing needs to be added, you know. Yeah. I think all great music has that, whether it's 100% composed, jazz could be 20% composed, 80%, whatever ratio it is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, uh, so I thought, this is too loose, man. And so I thought, I need something in between what I saw Chick do 
and what I see these guys doing. So that was Elephant's Dream of Music. You know, I, I also noticed that a form that prevalent in jazz was the composition, solo, 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 composition at the end. Yeah. And I thought, and that makes the tunes really long. Mm-hmm. Now, if the band is, you know, Miles with Cannonball and Coltrane and, and Bill Evans and Paul Chambers, that, fine, that's how it should be. Right. We want to hear everybody's solo is another masterpiece, you know, and each one complements each other. But I was thinking that, uh, see, I'd, I'd had the rehearsal band and we were playing just the written stuff with no blowing. We even did a gig like that. Mm. And I thought, this is beautiful because they're finally playing the music the way I hear it, what I wrote it. I literally sing every lick because I don't know enough about writing to indicate all the markings and such. Mm -hmm. And even then, I don't trust them. There's no marking that's going to tell the guy to go, boo-doo-da, oh-e-oh-e-ha. Right? You you can't write that. You have to sing it. Mm -hmm. And so I'd work with these guys, and they were playing it great. And and most of them were were and could be great improvisers, but they were just doing the, the, the written stuff. But then we did the gig, and I thought, this is too tight. This is, but I don't want to lose this because this took a lot of work to get this. This is precious. I had these guys meet once a week for no bread to rehearse my music. I mean, I can't throw that away. Sure. And so I thought, well, okay, I divided the band into what I call the drones, the worker bees, and the spirit voices. And the spirit voices would not have to make any rehearsals, not have to read anything, not have to learn anything, just show up and react to this composition. It's like the composition is kind of like a fixed environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you play it a little differently every time, but it has a certain shape building. And then I just put a bunch of creative kids in and say, just play. And people who I trusted not to play some bullshit, who would play what's needed, where it's needed, when it's needed. Right? Yeah. And th- those were Jim Pepper, Tara Masahino, Bill Frizzell. Uh, Lyle Mays actually did both. He was part of the drones. He played the parts, and then he also was part of the, um, you know. And that really seemed to work. So, in other words, the, the composition would be, uh, be almost all composition. And sometimes it would be, again, part A going to part B, going to part C, going back to part A. So there would be a six- or seven-minute composition, all written, but then I'd have people... Mm. So the, the, instead of the improvisation being in the middle between head and head, it was stacked. Sure. It wasn't uh, on top whenever needed or necessary. And, and that really seemed to work because um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tight record in the way of, um, you know, it's, it's very composed. It do, it, it's not longer than it needs to be, each piece. But there's a lot of room and freedom. In other words, it has a, a certain organic element. And, and that's also... Um, been a, 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 it's changing all the time, but in those days in particular, that was very much part of my aesthetic. Uh, the same in my painting and my visual work too is to is to have a hard line, a definite line that people who are looking at it once casually can see, can hear. Mm-hmm. But then, all, along with that, to have this organic. Mm. Little subtle textual thing that you might not hear until you hear it a hundred times. Sure. So there's stuff for people to hear the first time, and also if somebody's going to give it that much, like listen a hundred times, there's still more. I used to with my paintings. I used to do a whole painting underneath the actual painting. Hmm. 
I do them in light enough colors that when you put the darker thing, you wouldn't see them, but you'd feel it. Mm. It's like sometimes, um, sometimes walls were great works of art because there were certain walls where they put a lot of posters up, right? Uh-huh. But the poster from six years ago has already worn down is maybe just a little, so they got the new one over the half new one. So you'd see, you'd, you'd see a little bit what's under. Or sometimes, you know, the poster had worn through, so you're seeing this stone in the midst of the poster. Mm. So it's kind of like there's also under organic to go along with the definite, easy-to-hear stuff. Sure. If I say did anybody could hear that. Yeah. But I, but I, what I would probably do is say zinc. You know, I have some sure. other stuff that you'd have to be like, whoa. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The untranscribable, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, as I said, even though the, in that particular record, the, the worker bees uh, were certainly capable of being spirit voices, but I kept them on the, on the task. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and we, you know, they understood that I wasn't an insult, that I wasn't asking them to blow. Sure. You know, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the 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 original uh, sketches of Spain, right? With Miles, mm-hmm. he's the only soloist on yeah. the record. Look at the band playing behind him. It's, it's amazing. It's Cannonball is in the section, Coltrane. They're just playing written parts. Yeah, but you know, it is it makes a better record in a way. You know, I mean, it's so it's so it's such a statement with just Miles. So you know. sure, no doubt. And yeah. um, you know, and it's great that those cats, you know, were egoless enough to say, yeah, I'll just play the part and play play beautiful. For sure. Because I definitely treasured the worker bees because those were the ones who put in all the time. Mm -hmm. So I was very grateful. The spirit voices just came in at the end and did their thing. But Hino was like that. Uh, Jim Pepper. Also picked people who weren't necessarily great readers. Yeah. Great improvisers, you know. Sure, right. Some did both, you know. Yeah. It's an interesting point because everything is very defined in... In that record in particular, I can hear it, but it feels like everything you do, there's all you, you leave room for the people to be there themselves, to bring out their own personality and to bring them their own spirits to the whole Definitely. mix. But I that's an so. interesting. I never would have guessed exactly that it was sort of set into those two tiers where you have like. You well, know, it was the best way to get the written part at the level that I wanted it sure. with all the details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but it was too tight. It was too, we did that gig and it wasn't satisfying, even though I was gratified to hear the written stuff played so beautifully. So, but no, I said, we have to open it up. But, mm-hmm. you know, most of the, you probably didn't notice, but in the hallway, there's a bunch of boxes with envelopes in them. Mm-hmm. Those are all compositions. Wow. And most of, I never counted them, but there's probably three, four hundred, I don't know. Sure. Um, most of the more recent ones, but even but I wrote that way even when I was sixteen. I wrote like that too. So it's not like I just started doing it. But I'm I think I'm more kind of settled into that now. Um, although I can always break my own patterns, and I do. But um, they're mostly written with no bar lines, no key signature. So each sharp or flat is written in. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, uh, no chord changes. Um, well, obviously, there's no bar line, no time signature. Um, uh, so just a melody and a title. 
because mm -hmm. the title gives you some information. If sure. you're really trying to play poetically from the or spiritually from the title, which I to me is important. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we play some stuff and then later I title it because I see what the vibe is. You mm -hmm. know, we just make some shit up. But um, these these um, compositions, you know, and the you know the title gives you tells you a lot. Now one is called One with Infinite Space. Another is called um, Joyous Freedom. You know. And I remember I had a, a, the last date, I think I sent you this one, it's called Medicine for the Spirit. It's one of my later ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had this very fine trumpet player, Phil Grenadier, yeah. plays on it. Mm -hmm. And he was skeptical, man, about himself. He was like insecure. He came to rehearsal and, and I, was, I was getting on him for certain things. Because I said, we only got one rehearsal. I got to like get this up to the level it need be. Sure. And he was saying, man, you know, I don't, I don't know what to play, you know. But he didn't have the usual information that he was depending on the chord changes, the time signature, you know. And I said, "Well, man, you know, the title, one with infinite space, Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. joyous freedom." I mean, it could be anything. I'm not saying that was just sure, but that tells you a lot. That's a huge difference, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then he, but he never thought that way. Right? Anyway, he did great on the date. He did great, mm -hmm. and he was, he almost didn't make the date. He said, "I don't know about if I should do that." You know, I said, "No, you can, do, you'll do great, man. Just don't, don't, just be patient with me, because I, you know, because I gave you some strong um, encouragement, you know." But, but, and he, I think in the end, he was very glad that he did the record because he plays beautiful on it. And he plays right. For the record, but the, anyway, yeah. the point is kind of echoing what you just said. Um, I write this way because it encourages maximum creativity and freedom from the players. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my pro I got about fifteen records that are in various states of completion. Uh, some of them are really like epic, and this is an epic one too. It's going to be at least a double CD. Uh, I already got more than enough. I'm going to have to do some. Uh, further brutal editing, but it's 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 called Peace Universal, and it's uh, I, I write a song every Christmas. That's something that I I, I uh, promised to Steve Swallow okay. many years ago, and he's a great composer, a great mm -hmm. bass player, composer. and married to Carla Blay, another great composer. So he he knows composition, you know. Sure. And um, he wrote Falling Grace, classic tune. You know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, he said to me one time, he said, you know, Moses, you're you're a great composer. You should write more. And I first I said, you know, I don't think so. I said, you're a great composer. He said, no, you are. You really are. And I remember saying something like, well, Swallow, I've got like 400 tunes, you know, and that are laying in boxes in my hallway like a fire trap. And uh, <laughs> I don't do them on the computer. I do them old school, mm -hmm. paper, pen to paper. And uh, and do I and and 395 of them have never been played and probably never will be. Do I really need more paper lying around? He said, no, nah, it doesn't matter. Promise me you write one every Christmas. So because it's him, and it's really such a compliment, and such a sweet thing that he said, I know he meant it. He didn't have to say that. Um, I did. So I've been, and he didn't know. He forgot, actually. But I finally got in touch with him 30 years later and told him. And anyway, uh, every, every, even if I don't feel like it, I force myself. There's been some Christmases where I really don't feel. I, don't, I have no ideas. I don't really want to write anything. Um, I never enjoyed writing as a thing. Uh, uh, to me, I'd rather swim or play basketball or take a nap or play drums or take a nap sure. than write, writing something. But if it's important, if it's necessary, I, I'm pretty good at it. I just don't like doing it. So okay. um, anyway, uh, some of them come out a little weird, but, but they all are 
prayer in a way, po positive meditations on Jesus. Okay. Uh, you know, I Christmas don't know what songs. Jesus was real. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I'm an atheist Jew. You know, I don't know. But, but my sense is that he was a, a, a true spirit being who was trying to bring some enlightenment to the people. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I think of him that way. If nothing else, uh, he's another crazy Jew, and I can relate to that. <laughs> sure. So uh, anyway, every year. And the one I wrote, I think it's in 216, is called Peace Universal. Uh-huh. Um, I'll give you a copy, by the way. Yeah. I, I also I'd like to give one uh, to Emily as well. Sure. And I'll tell you why later. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. You'll, even though I have too much material already, maybe you'll contribute. Um, bass clarinet could be nice. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you could two together. I don't know. Sure. Um, most of them are solos, but I did occasionally put two. Anyway, I've had people from all over the world, or many places in the world, um, do versions of this song. Mm. And I got a double album of one song. Wow. And, Bob, it's not boring. I believe it. But, and, and, you know, and especially, of course, obviously the people who play piano or guitar harmonize it differently, you know. But even the single note, the horn players, um, nobody plays it the same. Some sure. people play it more classical, like stick, really stick with the melody and beautiful. There's one that guy, Daniel, who gave me the little drum, the saxophone player from um, Ecuador. He hardly played the melody. Oh, he just started off with sounds, with harmonics, beautiful. And just at the end, it's like this whisper of, of a little bit of it. And that's one of my favorite versions, actually. Hmm. Uh, so I've got people from uh, um, the Netherlands, from Germany, from Korea, from Bulgaria, from Russia, from Puerto Rico, from Brazil, from Ecuador, from the US, uh, probably a few others that I forgot, Italy, um, all playing this piece. Wow, and it's it's amazing. In some cases, I put two of them together that they didn't know. I've edited them. You know, once sure. people send me stuff, I said, "Don't now, don't be afraid. You know, you have to be aware. I may edit this in any weird way, but in the end, it'll be great. You know, sure. I, I'm only going to. Oh, Gil Goldstein did one on accordion. That's beautiful. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh, it's great, man. He did a beautiful. And Swallow did one finally <laughs> after I finally told him the story. He didn't remember anything about Christmas. He said. Yeah, I do remember asking you to write more, I think so. Yeah, he remembered that. So yeah. I told him the whole story, and he did a beautiful version where he played uh, solo bass, but halfway through he comes in on his keyboard. It's like an organ sound. And, mm. and those chords that he plays are just, man. And that one is so beautiful, it made me cry. Bill Frizzell did two. I'm using both. Um, Liebman. So there's some well-known people like Frizzell, like Liebman. Joe Lovano just did one for me. Oh, wow. Um, Boganzi did one. Um, mm -hmm. Stan Strickland. And, and many people who you probably wouldn't know, like some younger people who are probably not famous, but each one a visionary in their own. This piano player from the Netherlands, uh, Roloffs, is brilliant. He's kind of a genius. He did three, uh, including he's the best whistler I ever heard. The mm. cat sounds like Coltrane whistling. I had him do one with whistling. That probably closed the oh, album. Cool. Yeah. I've got some, you know, and, and, and there's a double album too, originally without me playing any, there's no me. I don't play anything on this. Uh, but a few of them I've overdubbed drums, if it's appropriate. Sure. Sometimes I, I try and go, ah, you know, it's better without me. Take it out, you know. But a couple of them. I played on the ones with Frizzell. Not because it needed drums, I just couldn't resist. It was like the Frizzell, he's probably, it sounded like some angelic cowboy music or something. Yeah, right. I played cymbals, gongs, mostly with Brazil. So, uh, so I'm drumming on a little bit of it, um, maybe 5% of it. But most of it is solos, sometimes duos. Sometimes I had people overdub on themselves. There's a great singer named Theo Bleckman. You know mm -hmm. who he is? Oh, yeah. He's a great singer. He's amazing. He's amazing. He did an incredible version uh, where he did seven of himself overdubbing. Wow. 
It reminds me of the score to, um, again, also a very small hint of my melody is in there, but it's kind of like hidden, like some, you know, hidden treasure that you have to, um, and, he, and it, his, his version reminded me of um, the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ. You ever hear that? Peter Gabriel wrote that. Hmm. That's, a, that's a heavy movie. That's Scorsese's controversial movie about... Uh, Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, William Defoe played Jesus. He was sure. pretty good. But the score is great. They got this guy, Gasparian, who plays the Dudek as the lead voice. Peter Gabriel is one of my favorite. Great, sure. great composer, great musician. Yeah. Um, anyway, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. So there's a lot of, a lot of variety, man. You know, uh, and some people sound almost classical. Some people, I, I did edit out a lot of me melodies. Sometimes people play two melodies in front. Improvise, take a, and then a melody at the end. That's too many because as it is, I got forty or fifty people. It's a great melody, but even I get sick of it if I hear it too many times. Sure, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've noticed something. This too, uh, you know, it's rare that I play gigs, so I, I can't really test it that much. But I think it's probably usually true. Um, is with the way that I'm writing. Um, maybe it's true whether you're writing stuff that's more in form, you know, bar lines and stuff. Um, invariably, the out the out head is stronger than the in head. Certainly, mm -hmm. with the free play, way stronger. And I, I attribute it to the fact that when people start blowing, gets the blood flowing, gets the ju creative juices. They're flying this, and then all of a sudden, when they hit that out head, ah! And the first one it tends to be more tentative, mm -hmm. more safe. Sure. Right. So when they want to do it at the end, it's like they're still blowing. It has that loose. I always feel like the, a melody should be played like you're blowing. Yeah. I don't mean you're adding a whole lot of notes, although you could, you could decorate it, but uh, um, just that you're playing it like you're, you know. I wrote something, I had a quote, I don't remember my own quote, but a paraphrase and so I said, you know, melodies should be played as if you're jumping off a cliff into the arms of God. You know, that's how you play a melody. Yeah. So almost invariably the ones at the end are the better. So I cut out a lot of the opening ones, not always, you know. Um, but anyway, that's another record that I'm, I'm close to being done with. I mean, uh, not when I'm thinking of, of editing and mixing, I still got a lot more work, but done in terms of performance, I think I've got uh, enough stuff. But, yeah. if, but if somebody comes across that gives me a great one, I'll fit, fit it in, you know. Sure, that's um, amazing. Yeah, so that's one project. Uh, and it, it's, it's really, the whole, the concept of the record is really the, um, a demonstration of the infinity of creativity. Sure. You see, here's this one simple melody, nothing, and yet it's infinite, man. Mm. You know, there's no bounds to it, how, where you could go with it. Sure. Tasiji plays that way all the time, but whether we're playing a melody or not, um, you know. Uh, so, so having a composition doesn't necessarily limit the creativity. It, it, it may focus the creativity. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of times, too, with, with the free playing, depends on who it is and what mood they're in and what, what time of day and everything. Um, I, I like music that's e e emotional, like, again, prayer mode. So. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I think everybody has that, right, inside themselves someplace. You know, the heart. We all have heart in us sometimes. But I think that be, for a lot of players, that becomes... They don't, it's not always out front. It's not always the main thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get up people from all this kind of weird, angular shit. It, it could be good. I, could, I get with that. But 
a lot of times my melodies are really for the purpose of directing people towards the prayer mode. Mm -hmm. Like the lioness, ba ba bo bo ba bo be be ba bo we di a di bo be a do 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 di do di a do e di u di ble e u da wa bo ba bo do ba bo e o bo we u do ba ba do do da da da. You know, it sets a sets a vibe. It's funny with the rubato stuff. If I ever play a gig, again, it's very rare that I've done any gigs playing these songs. Um, I, 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 I count them off, even though there's no time. They're rubato, no bar line. And that, to me, that's kind of humorous, too, because it's like, it's like counting off, jumping off a cliff. It's like, <laughs> one, two, one, two, three, four. Ah! <laughs> Splat, you know. Um, but then sometimes it's, you know, it's one, two, three, four. Ah! <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and that's uh, because you know the melodies. You know, within the rubato, which is at this point kind of my favorite way to play. I think it's a natural evolution if you're a rhythmatist. You know, if you're a person into rhythms, mm -hmm. um, because they they're by by definition the least mechanical. Mm -hmm. When I say mechanical, I don't mean mechanical like stiff. I mean mechanical like like you've done it before. Sure. Uh, it's based on something that you've done before. Mm -hmm. So much of music are d based on very similar things. The clave, the 2-3, three, the 3-2, three, the resolution points, the, the standards, the melodies, all these, you know. So, you know, uh, when it's from zero, um, new, a new rhythm, it, by definition, is, is less mechanical. And, and, the, and the challenge is to, to not play, be on automatic pilot and just do what your body ordinarily does, you know, to be re really 100% in the moment. So, um, and, and you know, as, you, as I've gotten better at it, I think I, my main, in the last 20 years, my rubato has been my main focus. Well, I still work on grooves too, especially on the kungas where I'm a beginner. I tend to play really simple grooves on the kungas. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've learned a lot about rubato, and one thing that you you don't want all rubato to sound the same. Yeah. So sometimes, and in general, when I'm doing time music, I often uh, enjo really enjoyed um, medium tempos mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. It's one thing I liked about monks' music. There's like do 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 da do do da do da bling bling bling. That that's kind of medium. A lot of them very medium. Yeah. And so I, I, I feel that way too uh, with the rubato. Again, it's not strict, not meant to be. Sure. Um, but, the, you know, so that, that's been useful sometimes. Um, 
to CG encouraged me to, to not even have that much composition, to start really zero and to really stay zero. But sometimes, you know, it's been part of my process as I, uh, uh, you know, to a lot of, most of my free playing came from grooves and from resolution points. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, don't think, I don't think you ever studied with me privately, did you? But, but you probably got a little bit of this during the ensembles, you know, yeah. talk about resolution points. Mm -hmm. you know, I got a lot out of that. Mastering yeah. the eight points in the bar. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, of course, First, just doing with, you know, eighth note says your grid of time. Right? Yeah. So if you got a one, want to pick a bang, da da da, and do 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 do, bang, chicka bang, bang, to bang, ticket, the aunt, bang, to an aunt, back, gag, 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 ticket, da do do do, bang, and chicka, ticket, and so on and so forth. You know, I could do all day on that shit. I used to. Yeah. But now, you know, you can take that and. Still there if I want it. Yeah. Uh huh. Or not. Sure. I'm not attached to it. I let it go if it, if it needs to be let go. I let yeah. it go. But I can hold it and still and play as free or organic. Mm -hmm. So that again, that was my path to. To free playing was through forms. Sure. I had to do it on the standards too, and I would always uh, tell people because, you know, I said, don't worry if you call me for a gig. I won't do this on your gig, you know, don't worry. I, you know, I'll play, I'll be a, ni I'll be a good boy, you know, I'll be a nice guy. Yeah. Um, but I would take the bop, better do, they yeah. Don't worry, I won't do it. I do that for my own uh, edumification, for my own development. See? Yeah. Uh, with learning to internalize forms so strong that you can play anything on. Then you have. Uh, so I think if for people again who are interested in free playing, um, I do recommend if you if you have the patience and the stomach for it and the, and the pay, you know. Uh, uh, learn to get free on forms first mm -hmm. before you get free from no form, from zero. Sure. Mm -hmm. like absolutely no beginning, no instigation, nothing. Um, yeah. Um, I think that's part of the process, you know. Um, you know. Some people jump to the head of the class, you know, they jump to that and it could be good, you know. It could, you know I, I listen to everything with an open mind. Mm -hmm. But generally I found that the, the people who were the best free players were great form players, mm -hmm. like Rashid Ali, like Coltrane, sure. like Pharaoh, yeah. like Tasiji. Um, and it sounds like you're coming from this as well, just you're playing from the grooves, but it's just taking it as far out as you can take it. It all has that root in dance music and everything you were doing before, but a lot of it does. Sometimes it I'll do just space, you know. You know, I, I, it depends on the player too, who get me out of my own shit, which I really like. That there's a there's a percussionist. We've done two records together so far. Uh, the, the first one we did is, uh, is due to come out, I think, in October. Um, his name is Vasco Trila. He's, um, I think he's originally Portuguese, but he lives in Spain, in Barcelona. And he's, man, this guy's really unique, visionary percussionist. 
He does things with timpanis and gongs where he puts these things on the timpani. You can find him on YouTube. It's, he's just to watch visually what he's doing, but the sounds and there's so much space in what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And um, the first record, he sent me these tracks and asked me to play over them. And Bobby, let me tell you, it was a challenge for me to slow myself down and to play so little. Mm. Because, yeah, you're right, my, my natural tends to be danceable, move, movement, so you always feel movement. His stuff is... It was like, and I did, uh, eventually I did a good job. I did a few takes and, you know, we picked the best of it. Um, but it was definitely a challenge, you know. And I think it's a beautiful record. The, the tones that he got are very uh, homogeneous with the tones that I get. Hmm. Um, I, I brought more stuff. I have a lot of other stuff that are not in this room, but you see it's already cluttered as it is. So I leave it in the hallway or in the closet and bring it out when it's necessary, you know. Sure. Um, but then we did another one where I sent him some of my sonic beds, which, by the way, I'd be happy to send you as well if you feel like improvising on some rock alarm drum cushions. That's oh, what yeah. they are. They're, they're not meant to be solos. They're meant to be played over or composed over, improvised over. Mm -hmm. um, sure. I, that's why I call them sonic beds. And they're it, invariably me overdubbed at least three, four, sometimes five times on various zones. You know, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's all a cymbal gong zone, sometimes a bass zone, sometimes Dumbek, sometimes, lately I did a bunch, recently Kunga, because I love my new Giovanni Galaxy Kungas, I love mm. them too. so we did a bunch of Kunga beds, um, and then, and so the second one, he played more on my vibe, so the second one has a little more of a danceable flavor, although I know his style, so I sent him a lot of the, well he chose a lot of the, I, cho I, I chose some for him, uh, uh, some of them are, are kind of spacey, because I have some like that, I go there sometimes. Sure. But I sent a few that have a little more of a, a more of a native, danceable vibe, like you say, and, and he did good. I mean, you know, there again, you know, I think we all should appreciate when musicians that we play with take us out of our normal routine. That's I love a, that. That's a great blessing, man. That's yeah. one of the great things music can do if you're open to it, if you don't hold on too much to what you usually do. Yeah. So I find that's a lot of the school musicians, they, they want to know beforehand. Right. And they almost train themselves to not listen because they're, they're, they always want to play what they know. I think they feel it's, I think it's fear-based mm -hmm. and they feel safer. And a lot of things that they know, honestly, isn't even their stuff anyway. It's sure. stuff they've taken from other previous greats, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't recommend that. And, and so well, there was a guitar player who also did a version of Peace Universal that's brilliant. Um, one of my favorite guitar players, a Swedish cat named Martin Nielsen. And, uh, but anyway, the first time I met him, he was in one of my ensembles that I was doing in Denmark. They set me up with a thing for a week at this camp. Uh, mm -hmm. Where really excellent musician, young and old, mm -hmm. came to have different vibe with different teachers, you know. And one of the things was lead an ensemble, and he was in my ensemble. And I think it was whenever it started, nine o'clock in the morning. Some I was staying right upstairs, so all I had to do was j just walk down the stairs, right. Mm -hmm. And so I would, if it was supposed to be at nine, I try to come down at ten to nine just to tune the drum, get comfortable, figure out what I was going to do. And usually I already got some kind of groove or something in my head. I'm, I'm walking down the stairs going, you know, and he would always be there. He would get there like 20 minutes, a half hour before, just tuning. 
Hmm. And he would hit in one note, just like, down, you know, just let it ring forever. And I thought, wow, but you know, he, he's gone, he's first. You know, I didn't start it, so he didn't have to listen to me. I gotta listen to him. And I would go to the piano, and he was, you know, dum, and eventually I'd, dum, I hit one note, you know, 20 seconds later, By the time the rest of the people came down, people couldn't believe it. They were in a trance. We, it was got deep prayer mode, you know, like meditation mode, like one note at a time, like like Om, like you, you know, it's like chanting basically. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to Martin, I said, "Man, you know, uh, thank you so much." The same thing I was saying. This what a blessing when people bring you out of your norm like that. Yeah. I said, "I, you have a capacity for stillness and peace." in your plan that is not usual for me. I said the same to this guy Vasco, who's a percussionist, you know, um, similar in a way. And, uh, you know, I said, so that's the beauty of music. And then I remember another time I said, okay, we were just the two of us were together. I said, let me start one mm -hmm. and see what you did. And I started, you know, it was one of my rock along things. playing these like short notes, these like dry, it's beautiful. He said, you know, I never played like that before. But it was coming from my drumming. So, and that's, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's it. Th that's the beauty of it. So, you know, depending on uh, who I'm playing with, this guy Roloffs, we're doing a long distance record, the pianist from uh, the Netherlands, who's the great whistler, and we're doing a duo record. And he's taken my compositions. I, he loves my composition. I send him these compositions that are basically no, no, no chords, no time, signature, nothing. And he does these versions that are like, whoa, they're so beautiful. Uh, one, a couple of them sound like something Bach wrote or something. Mm. And I said, man, did I write that? You know, I couldn't believe I wrote that. But it's his interpretation of it. He just took it to such a high level. But he does, he's a, he's a groover too, but he does have a, I'm sorry for the stereotype, I apologize in advance, but he does have a more of a European approach, like more like classical music. Mm -hmm. And invariably, he plays them way slower than I ever would have played them. Because hmm. again, I think of him as, you know, and he's like, ooh. You know, and so drumming with that was hard, man. Really hard, but it's going to be a beautiful record too because it's one of my more subtle, spacious, you know... Um, I, I, I feel it's very important to play as, as much or as little as necessary. So I like records where I don't have to do much, where just a little gesture is big, because it's... Um, but I have plenty where it got me a, a lot of stuff going on, so it's nice to have a few that are more space, and, and uh, that's another beautiful record, uh, as we call it, A Light in the Darkness. That's one of the pieces that... But he did beautiful versions of, um, of my song, but completely different than how I hear them. Mm. 
And that's again, that's a that's why I write that way. Sure. So like you said, he's him, he's himself playing my stuff. Yeah. It's totally him, you know. Mm. Now you know if we were to do a group or something, maybe a different situation, I might say, yeah, Mike. Maybe you know if we were together in person, maybe we would talk a bit, have some idea, try a different approach. But I usually, when I send the people stuff, I don't like to tell them anything. Mm -hmm. you know, with this piece, piece universal, which I'm happy to lay a copy on you. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, maybe you'll record something for me. Yeah, I'd um, love to. We'll, you know, we'll. Uh, yeah, again, I don't want to tell you anything. See how how you hear it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and then of course you you know with the rubato too, you could hear it completely different from one day to the next. If you did it on Monday, you said, you know, I want to try it again on Tuesday, you know, yeah, depending on whether you had an espresso or or, or a cognac. You know. <laughs> Could have a big effect on how you play the tune, right? for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or where your head is at, you know, just what you, what you're thinking about that day, where where you're at, where you vibe, what your mood is, what what you might see. Man, I last uh, it was like it was like two nights ago. I looked out; it was like close to dark, but it was still light. It was like maybe seven thirty, eight o'clock, and there was a rainbow and thunder at the same time. So mm. this rainbow and then, man, this, I said, wow, I really want, I like to play that, you know. That definitely, the next thing I played on the drums was very inspired by just going out, and it was raining, but I was saying, being rained on with the, with the, and the rainbow and the, the thunder. Uh, I have a little porch out there outside my room, and mm. uh, I spend time out there when I can, I like it. Uh, looking at the sky, so but the, just the, the the action in the sky was 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 a lot going on. Mm. Uh, there was cloud here, but there's one place where the sun was still coming through, and and these giant things of lightning that covered the whole sky with like it was kind of a half rainbow. Yeah, it's quite beautiful mm. for Quincy, not the usual vision you have. Sure. So you know anything can affect it, and uh, that's why I do like to write this way. Um, also, you know what I've done when I do gigs with several horns. This concept of of, of playing together is really like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and sure. it always makes the music weaker. You know, because the, because there's an element of worry. Sure. Am I correct? Yeah. Am I with the other person? So I tell them right off the bat, you play it how you want it. Let the other person play how they want it. Don't have to be together. I mean, the other person is only a few feet away, so it probably will have some effect. You'll hear it, but don't, and oh, it's so much stronger. Mm. And it's so much more beautiful because you got the same melody being played at different speeds. So it creates this beautiful polyrhythmic fugue that's just, you could never write that. Mm. Sure. So that, that was true on the Medicine for the Spirit record with those, with those peeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're all playing the same melody, more or less, you know, and already they're improvising from the git, but they did play the melody. They're all, almost all classically trained people. They're all school musicians. Ed Morris, school musician, Gaia, Daniel. So they all, you know, can read and play in tune and all stuff, the, the, the school virtues. Um, but they, yeah, they were, they're just weaving in and out and just, uh, you know, very, very... Uh, but I, I think they're, they're much stronger that way, you know, because uh, people would try to play the stuff together and, and it was always weaker and, yeah, you, mm. could, you could feel the worry. Sure. And, and, it, and, yeah. and if they nailed it, it didn't even sound that good anyway. It sounds yeah, yeah, better. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm going to say, ba, ba, boo, boo, ba, 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 boo, boo, at the same time. That's great. Yeah, sure. It's great. You'll have a phrase, and then the other person will kind of play that phrase right after or something. Man, that's, that's things are beautiful, these kind of uh, beautiful, happy accidents. Mm-hmm. But I do find that if people not worried about being in, together like this with the other peeps, they play it so much stronger. Mm. Some people naturally hear things faster. Some people naturally hear things slower. Sure. Some people put pauses where other people wouldn't put pauses, you know. All these things come into play. Mm. So the few times I do lo- lo- live gigs, that's, uh, you know, all, always my instructions. Most of the people na- by now know that, you know, if it's the same people. If I'm playing with somebody new and I have several horn players and they all have the melody in front of them, I say, don't, don't even try to play it together. Sure. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's certainly... Uh, one of the last shows I saw before this whole lockdown was you and Tsiji and um, a few other people at the Falcon. You're going back there pretty soon, I, I think. Yeah, for our last one, because Tsiji's moving. Where's he moving? Virginia. Oh, wow. Yeah. How long have you been playing with him? Since uh, late 70s, early, early 80s. Late mm-hmm. 70s, early 80s, I think, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was uh, changed my life, man. There's not, nothing that ever happened in my life has been that profound as playing with him, knowing him, um, being his student, being his, you know, being a spiritual practitioner under his guidance and mm. music. I, I, I've never heard anything like it. I, you know, even train to me is there's nothing, nothing is as close. Even and even my own music, I. I feel good about it. I wouldn't put it out, but I, I don't feel it's as deep as his, what he's doing. I, and I, to me, the most important work I do on in this lifetime, in this body on Earth, has been to help him with his music. Because mm. wow. his music changes, the, heals the world, even if people don't know about it. It works on so many subtle levels. Most people don't know about it. Mm. Um, but, you know, mine is like a pale, you know, mine, you know, it's like, yeah. I'm like somebody who's in the sun. He's like the sun. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, something. that's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hear it in his playing. He's a, you know, he's the only... I mean, I'm sure there's quite, over years, um, quite a few spiritual masters, but ne- not nearly as many as musical masters. Mm-hmm. Musical masters are kind of a dime a dozen, at the, you know, at this point. They're all over the place. Sure. Um, Spiritual masters is, uh, you know, very, very rare that you meet, ever meet one or get to talk to one. Um, by definition, they're usually renunciates, and their life is of sacrifice, of giving up everything. Uh, nobody wants to do that path. Right. Almost nobody wants to do that path. Tassiji mm-hmm. said when I first met him, he said, you know, well, not when I, first, when I first came to him for spiritual guidance, which was about 20 years after I first met him, that's how slow I was to even begin to think I could go on that path, you know. Um, he said, yeah, spiritual practice is impossible. That's why you have to do it. <laughs> so he didn't sugarcoat it, you know. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, a lot of these people who are trying to make money off the practitioners, they'll say, oh, yeah, just come with us and say this every day and do this every day and, and you'll be fine. It's not true. Mm. In most cases, not sure. true. Um, one of the things he told me early on, too, is that... Uh, uh, a true a spiritual master, uh, or a spiritual being, he didn't say master, he doesn't call himself master, but other people do, I do. 
Uh, he said, um, a spiritual being tries to change nothing and no one. Hmm. And he didn't even, he waited almost 20 years before he even said, hey man, you know, you should come sit with me. He, that's patience, man. Yeah. He watched me go through all kinds of stuff and even mess up his music sometimes, like on gigs or de recordings where I was out of my mind and I overplayed, I wasn't listening, I was too stoned, whatever, you know. Um, and never said anything. Um, but until I came to him for it, he waited. That's real. Then you know that's, a, that's the real deal. Sure. And the first time I did came for that, I said, let's say no drums, no guitar. I just want to come and sit. I know you have some, some wisdom for me. I know you have some, something that will help me, you know. And he said, okay. And I think we sat, I was sitting like 18 hours straight. Wow. And, and I'm sitting, by that time, I'm sitting like this. He's still like perfectly upright but relaxed. Eventually he said, yeah, I, I think you need a little rest now. He didn't, but I, I said, yeah, okay, I laid down. Yeah. Three hours later, there's a bell, bing, wake up. Said, oh, shit, <laughs> spiritual boot camp here, man. You know, <laughs> when you're with the, when the master, he hardly ever sleeps, man. And his, his level of discipline is beyond anybody I, I've, I've known. But that's been, that's been a big help, you know, for sure. And music, that man, is, you know. I described his playing as the, the sound of the broken heart healed. Hmm. Um, also, you know, people compare him to Train because that's the only person you could compare him to. The only other musician that has a sim any kind of similar vibe to Tsiji is Train. Mm. Um, but they took very, obviously, very different paths because Train was a music fanatic who eventually went on a spiritual path. Tsiji is a spiritual path who also plays music. Mm. So he always put the spiritual ahead of the musical. He turned down gigs with Miles. He turned down gigs with Pharaoh. He turned down gigs with everybody. Phil Ramone, the great hmm. producer, wanted to make him a star. He said, man, you're like a combination of Coltrane and Jimi Hendrix. Let me produce you. I can make you all the money. He said, oh, thank you, but no. And only plays maybe like once a year at best anyway. And lately with the pandemic, not even that. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of big, and the fact that he's moving, that we have one last hit, uh, it means a lot to me. I'm trying to play it, and just to be in, and pray, play and pray a lot in preparation for it. Um, mm. And then we actually have one other thing before he leaves town. Um, we're going to try to record a trio with Dave Liebman, mm. which was Liebman's request. Oh, wow. Because the uh, last few records we did with Liebby, um, a lot of folks on the date. In fact, the one with Billy Hart and me, which is great, called Immortal Drumming. Mm -hmm. um, and that's got uh, two drummers, uh, two basses, uh, uh, Don Pate, Yaka, and, and David Fink. Um, Paul Schaefer is on piano, keyboard, to CG on guitar, and, and Levy on uh, horns, you know. And, uh, and he said, could we do one with just... To CG and Moe's, man, that's, a, you know, can we do it like that? To CG said, yeah, and, I, and, and I'm up for it, even though, you know, uh, you know I, I'm still, am I ready? You know, uh, that's going to put a lot on me, but uh, yeah, let's do it. Hmm. Uh, Libby's getting old, too. He's getting more frail. You know, he's had health issues. Um, uh, last time I saw him, he was playing sitting down, which he never used to do. Uh, still playing his ass, or still yeah. bringing it, but, mm -hmm. but definitely uh, winding down. To CG's having uh, some brain issues, uh, malfunctions and stuff. Um, he's, uh, yeah, I'm definitely got my issues. I, I had an eye operation. I have another one coming up in a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, 
some other issues, which I won't bore you with. But, you know, I can feel age, you know, definitely having its way, as, sure. as, as it does, you know. Um, but spiritually, and over the last few days, I, I, I've been playing and recording. I think my playing's getting better. Mm. Um, it's great. Not in a certain way, but not, not, it's not as macho, it's not as strong, um, not as fast, but I think it's getting better. Mm -hmm. Sure. Did, did CG give you the name Rock Alam? Yes. What does that mean? That's a good question. That means the inaudible sound of the invisible sun. Mm. Yeah, hard one to live up to. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm at my best and I hear my drumming back, especially on some of his records, I would say Alpha Nebula is one and uh, that, that I sound like that. You know, in other words, um, it sounds like the self has completely melted. Like I don't hear any Bob Moses at that point. Mm. It's rock along. It's it's. It's like just the drums are just part of this beautiful, impersonal, cosmic mess, you see. Mm. See, um, most music and most musicians, most artists, uh, and I was, I was very much this as well. I hopefully not so much anymore. Um, it's personal. You play about where you've been and who you heard and where you studied and and where you lived, and, and who you love, and who you're with, and all these things you've come from directly from your life, uh, what you've heard mostly, you know, other people's music, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's personal. Um, but I'm finding the music is through, and with, largely through Tsiji's help, of t it's become more impersonal. Um, it's like the weather, man, you know, and it rains, it rains on everybody, it's not personal. Mm. When the tsunami comes, it's not personal. It takes the nice people and the not nice people equally. Uh, when the sun comes out, it shines on everybody. Doesn't care if you're an asshole or not. It's not personal. <laughs> so you know the, the you know I would say there's 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 personal love, family love, uh, relationship love, uh, father to son, son to father, daughter, whatever, um, love, very strong, very powerful. But then there's uh, what we might call God love, and and that's more like eternal. Because the other personal loves uh, do go up and down from time to time. You sure. Know? Mm -hmm. And don't always last. Yeah. U usually uh, blood lasts, but not always. You know, people fall out, don't even talk to their parents or something. Or, or parents who lock their kid out because the kid is messing up badly or something. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, brothers who hate each other. I mean, it's usually not the case. We hope not. But sure. it does happen. So there's, uh, you know, there's a blood family and there's a psychic family. But God love is different, and it, it doesn't vary. It's, it's like eternal. It's like burning all the time. You have to tune it, tap into it. Hmm. Uh, when you're around to CG, that's the feeling that you get. Wow. And I find that the music, uh, it's really affected the music. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm not, all, I'm not there yet, and I'm still aware. I have a lot of uh, Bob Moses traits and habits and uh, um, still trying to work through. And, and, and certain things that come up uh, in the music drum. I found that I think most of the drummers that I met, the really good drummers, they, they tend to have a core rhythm. Or, or several, maybe not just one, but Billy Hart definitely had one. He had this, every time I play with him, he has this one lick that he always plays, you know. It's his lick, man. It's mm -hmm. like his, and my core rhythm is like a six, basically.
and so forth. Yeah. This comes natural to me. But then again, when I play with Tsiji, none of that. None of that. Yeah, Nothing. yeah, yeah. Sure. But on my own, hey, why not? It's, yeah, it's, no doubt. It's, it just comes natural. Yeah. I, I have a bunch of tunes that I wrote in six. Um, I love seven, too. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I've tried them, uh, most of them, uh, time signatures at different times. They each have their own. But there's something about that six, you know. I just dig it. Yeah, I, I had a reggae tune that was in six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a six five. I don't know. Huh. It's like it seems like it's my core rhythm. So sometimes you know. Right. When I warm up or something, I'll just get back in the music. I'll, I'll pull that one out, you know. Sure. Yeah. Huh. That's but I love else. playing with the CG because uh, nothing from the past works. Sure. Nothing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, listen, I got to get you to your car before. Oh, yeah. What time here. is it doing? So it's, we're, we're a little over. It's, it's about 4.50. You think they're going to be. I think they're going to be close. I hope they're open until 6. Let's, let's, let's so this that. is a good place to stop anyway. This is beautiful, yeah. man. Was it good? Yeah, great. I really appreciate it. Okay, yeah. cool. It's amazing. Oh, yep. thank you. I always learn a lot, man. Oh, good. All right, gang. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Jazztopia. That was a trip, wasn't it? Man, that guy has made of music and some of those stories. Really unbelievable stuff. Huge thanks to Rock Alarm Bob Moses for joining me on the show this week. Also, big thanks to David Sullivan for recording the drums in multi-track so we can get a beautiful sound out of that drum kit as he was playing for us throughout. That was really amazing. The end there, we had to go pick up his car, so <laughs> that's where you're ending there, but... Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's really great to get to reconnect with Rock Alam and hear some of those stories. If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing here at Jazztopia, you should uh, you know, follow us on your favorite podcast platform or Spotify. Give us a like. Send us to your friends. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook at Jazztopia or on SoundCloud at Jazztopia Podcast or on YouTube if you search for Jazztopia. You can also follow me, Bobby Spellman, on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman, on Facebook at Bobby Spellman Music, or on Twitter at Bobby.Spellman. All right, gang. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I hope you've had a good time. We will catch you on the next one. We're going to be doing these all summer. So keep up to date with what's happening. We'll get you some great conversations on jazz and improvised music. All right, gang. Have a great time. We'll see you. Yeah, give me some of that secret bonus content. Ah.